Hey guys, it's Walter, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode five. With me today, I have Nomad. Say hello. Hello. Nomad composed the uh, theme song we have at the beginning of the podcast, and he's also working on some other smaller tracks we're going to use for interstitials between segments. And of course, I also have my regulars. Who do I have with me? Got Hi. Griffith. And Azil. Awesome. Awesome, guys. Well, the reason we have Nomad on today is because we wanted to talk about Berserk music. Nomad has kind of a unique relationship with music because he does some composing work. And this uh, is a freelance or is it a professional job? How's that work exactly? It's pretty much a hobby. I, I'm not a professional uh, in any way. I just uh, I love the music. Uh, I've studied compositions before on my own. And uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, I did my contribution in uh, Skull Knight and hopefully continue to do so. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I love what you've done so far. And I always look forward to see, hearing stuff you uh, make a loved the Hill of Swords thing that you made a couple months back. Maybe it's been a year. I think that was the first full composition I heard of yours, independent of that sign MIDI thing. I believe it was my first actual finished composition, actually. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> yeah. And you dedicated it to Berserk. I dedicate. Well, yeah, I mean, it was Berserk. Um, it was mostly for the members at Skull Knight, per se, because I wanted to make something that people can relate to, listen to something while they're reading the mangas or... Um, yeah. you know, so that it was pretty much, you know, that, that, that was the primary goal. Um, and hopefully I continue to do more and people do end up appreciating them and continue to, uh, adapt it to, you know, berserk and, and everything. So that's a great idea, man, because I'm sure the other guys will agree, but whenever I'm reading berserk, I, I try to like to have, I mean, I kind of naturally have a soundtrack in my head when I read certain things and, and whenever a new episode comes out, if it's a big deal, I do kind of like cheesily like to queue up some kind of berserk type music to kind of get in the mood for it as I'm reading it. Exactly. And, <laughs> and for, for me though, the trouble is that Suzumu or Hirazawa's stuff, it's, there's not much of it, you know, there's it, really just, I mean, my opinion is like two and a half albums worth. He had the Dreamcast game, the original anime OST, and he had like two or three, I don't know, five tracks or was it even that for the PS2 game? No, it's just two sign and two. sign two. Right. Yeah. So there's not it's not like a huge body of work you can draw from. And his solo stuff isn't necessarily quite the same, you know, it's kinda of has his own flavor to it. So I mean, there is kind of a Darth of a massive a large volume of Berserk music. So fans making their own is an awesome idea and I hope we hear more of that. So Griff, uh you did something in relation to the Hill of Swords song as well, didn't you? Oh, yes. I made a music video based around it. <laughs> yeah. Dude, um, I, I have to say, Griffith, I mean, and I wanted you to be here uh, in, this, you know, in this section because I wanted to thank you for that. I mean, you completely and utterly uh, gave it that extra edge. Um, I was very, very grateful uh, when, I, uh, when I saw it. And frankly, the first time I saw the link... I hesitated because I was like, "Uh oh, <laughs> you know, what? <laughs> yeah. what, what is he doing? You know, because normally, you know, you, you tend to be, you know, do funny stuff. And I'm like, oh, is he going to mock it or, <laughs> you know? Oh, no. But, but as, as soon as I play the play the video, I mean, my my jaw literally dropped. And coming from me, I mean, I'm not used to people liking, you know, not well, not liking, but not making it such a big deal out of something, you know, like a simple composition like that. And. So you sure. definitely uh, 
you definitely gave it that edge, and and I wanted to thank you personally for that. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, it was a uh, yeah. I mean, I was grateful to do it. I mean, it was on. It was my first, uh, you know, like music video too. Sort of how I said that. I thought that was interesting when you said it was like your first sort of finished composition, because yeah, I saw the parallel there. It was the same way for me making the video, and it just sort of just sort of happened. Yeah, whenever you chose the, the the scenes that you chose for the Hill of Swords, obviously the title of the, it is the Hill of Swords, so it's conjuring up the memories of the dead falcons. But the the scenery you chose was the the funeral sequence uh, in the anime. I guess that was yeah. because you, of, of the clips you could pull that would match that. You don't exactly have the Hill of Swords and stuff animated, so yeah. And also, I believe uh, when Nomad posted it, he described it as being like you know like a score. Okay. And so, you know, I thought like this would, you know, really nicely score the funeral scene, like sort of as an alternative. So I started there and I was going to have other stuff like, you know, there was actually some shots of like a sword in the ground with like a helmet next to it with Griffith riding his horses. I was going to try to sort of, you know, makeshift like Hill of Swords and maybe then go into like little vignettes with all the different hawks. Mm. But it just became easier and more organic to tie it to that funeral scene. And because that leads directly into, you know, Guts and Griffith's confrontation on, you know, that snowy hill, you know, when Guts right. leaves. It's, you know, it was, it just was more organic that way. And yeah. obviously, like, that's one of the most dramatic like, parts of the series. And yeah, and it, it fit the song. And so, yeah, it sort of, so it really, really came together pretty organically. Hmm. No, I mean, you used, you used a lot of, um, and, and my, my main concern as I was watching the video the first time was that little rain effect that I actually accidentally added in, in the end of the track. And I, I kept wondering, it's like, what is he going to do with that? I mean, I, <laughs> I had no idea how you were going to finish it. And you did it so flawlessly. I mean, it didn't even occur to me that scene in, uh, uh, of Griffith with Charlotte. And, um, you know, it, it was just flawless, dude. I mean, any element that you could have gotten out of the anime, you definitely executed perfectly so it was awesome i you know thanks again <laughs> oh, thank you know thank you again and uh for making it and also yeah it, again it was like it it flowed very naturally because it's like yeah that's the next scene after the scene right. uh on the uh when they have their duel there so it yeah and the other sort of uh like that alternate like so the alternate ideas i had for it i was also going to maybe show at the end uh the black swordsman in the rain oh yeah from the first episode to yeah. sort of the you know give the whole like where it's going to go eventually but that seemed a little abstract he was going to show griffith with charlotte and then instead of you know that morning after scene mm. cut to guts in the rain as the black swordsman you know sort of like how that all led to their downfall right and his revenge but yeah it just i thought it worked better just sticking with that little like piece of time nomad whenever you compose it can you kind of talk about your method like what did you use to create those? Like, I have no understanding of how people make music other than seeing, like, you know, biopics in theaters. It's like, you know, I have no real understanding of it. So what do well, you use? I mean, it's, for me, it's a little, it's more awkward. It's not technical because I play by ear. I don't know how to write music. Um, I don't even know how to read uh, music and paper. I just, I pretty much just listen to a song or... I imagine a song and then I'm able to separate them by layers. Uh, you know, you have your primary melody, your secondary melody and such. And I just I try to figure out what's the best way to describe the emotion or the imaginary vision, if you will. Mm. Um, and uh, I pretty much just sit down and 
diddle daddle for it. Uh, I think the toughest part has to be uh, executing the sounds um, accurately. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, at least for the programs that I use, there's, there's nothing major. It's, it's actually a, a simple <laughs> little dinky program. Um, and trying to figure out how, what would be the best sound and how can I uh, filter it to m- actually make it sound real. Mm-hmm. Uh, but normally when it comes to scores and, and, and such, you want to have some sort of a direction. You find out what the goal is. Um, like, for instance, and I'm using Hillisaur as an example, you know, my focus was closure. I wanted to give uh, the Falcons some sort of a more emotional closure than just a hill of sorts. Mm. Um, so I wanted, you know, I wanted something with a little bit of sadness. It's it's beauty uh, also in the in the mixture. But I think the overall feeling was nostalgia. Um, I've always imagined Guts having that in his mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a, one, one of the many weights that he carries on a daily basis. So sure. that's pretty much, you know, that I, I can't, I don't think that there's an actual structure to it. I pretty much just st- I started up, you know, doing the composition. It took me years. I mean, it, really? Wow. Yes. Um, I, I mean, I kept telling as I wanted to do it and I started nibbing around and I'll, I'll show, uh, like an intro and I, Kriveth, I believe I sent you that as well. Um, yeah. You know, and it was a completely different intro for the Hill of Swords. But then I was like, well, this is a little too long. And, you know, so I changed it a little bit. And then thankfully in my personal life, I was in a position where I had enough time to to dedicate it to it. And it took me about a week total mm. starting from scratch because I pretty much deleted everything else that I tried. And and that's, that was it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Finished when, product, you know. Whenever you're talking about composing the music, I was wondering about the instrumentation you choose and, and how you choose certain instruments or sounds to fit the Berserk world, because that was one of the big things I wanted to talk about here was this is the sound. What does the Berserk world sound like, and or and, and how is that sound influenced by the music that has come before? Like, what do you think is the closest to true? What is the most authentic Berserk sound in, in your mind as someone who knows music? Um, I would say, see, it's it's hard because, like you said, I mean, Susumu Hirasawa. He, he's obviously the main guy, you know, for animes and video games and such. Um, so it's for, I find it hard to stream off of him because most, me- you know, the fans, they're used to the Susumu Hirasawa concept. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think overall for Berserk, you know, any genre can fit in really, except for, you know, maybe Polka or <laughs> 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 something like that. But um, as far, but the sounds have to be well orchestrated. You just can't use any sound and be like, okay, this is, you know, my dedication to Berserk. Um, you look at, you know, their their wardrobe or their, their armors. Mm-hmm. So you have a, a sense of multicultural, uh, yeah. you know, uh, elements in there. So that's something that is, it's, I, I would definitely use that as my weapon of choice. I would exploit instruments that are known to be for a specific culture. And I, I, just a, 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 an example would be um, like a, a bagpipe. You know, you, mm-hmm. you listen to a bagpipe and you immediately, oh, Scottish, you know. Yeah. Um, Isn't there some of that in Guts theme on the anime soundtrack? Yes. Yes, there is. Um, that, well, which, which soundtrack in particular? Sorry, the, the anime soundtrack, Guts, it's called Guts theme. It's track four of the anime. 
Or maybe I'm thinking of something else. But, but are you talking about the old anime or the new anime? <laughs> I, I'm not even going to refer to the new anime soundtrack. When I say the anime soundtrack, I'm not referring to that. I'm referring to the 97 anime. Yes, yes. Um, he used well, that, actually... Uh, uh, maybe I'm thinking of the wrong track, but I know there's a bagpipe sequence in... Oh, it's Earth. I'm thinking of Earth. Earth, yes. Track 8, yeah. Yes. Oh, it, was yeah. Rare, it, it was a very rare track, um, all things considered, because it gives it that techno feeling. It even has like a yeah. techno to it. Right. Um, and associating Berserk with that, it's a little awkward. I'm not going to lie. Um, especially, you know, with the, with the little beats going on and everything. But, I, you know, I think they give it that diversity. But in overall, uh, definitely uh, hitting the cultural sounds, the grumbling sounds. Because, I mean, we have to acknowledge that a lot of the main characters, key characters in Berserk, there's a lot of grudge <laughs> in this story. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. a lot of anger, and and so you have to find like the rumbling sound, something scruffy, something. I've always I've always imagined Berserk, no matter what kind of melody, like this deep, um, kind of like a trembling sound mm-hmm. in the background, for some reason, and that's something that that Susumu Hirasawa does, um, subconsciously. I don't know. Um, but a lot of reverb, a lot of echo, uh, saturation, all those things. Um, sure, I, think- I mean that fits in the theme of the series. I, I, I hate to sound too pretentious, but the the, the series itself, talking about you're talking about the golden age. It's a, it's a time when there's darkness lurking in the background that's soon going to be in the forefront. So it's like always there, you know, on the on the precipice of taking over that the world that they that they know in the golden age. So it makes sense to have some kind of hint or a cameo of the darkness that'll come, you know, I think that's a cool concept and it's definitely in there in the anime soundtrack. But um, getting back to the point of Suzumu, I think it's worth noting for those that might not know is that Miura wrote Berserk, well he said that he wrote the early parts of Berserk while listening to Suzumu Hirazawa's music in the 80s or the early 90s. And so... No, 90s. Okay, 90s. And uh, that's why he was either happy to or specifically chose Suzumu to do the anime soundtrack. I'm pretty sure, actually, I know for sure that he specifically asked uh, okay. Hirazawa to do it. He asked him, and you know, Hirazawa agreed. That's awesome. Yeah, and, and you know, that whenever I heard that, it made me kind of hunt down his earlier stuff to see what it was that Miura was, you know, influenced by or, or struck by, you know. And it kind of made me put in, to put you in the head of Miura whenever he was in that time. It's kind of neat. But uh, to get back to the point of Suzumu. Do you think the Suzumu, does, does he define Berserk, or do you think there's more potential than that? Or is that kind of just like, is he just, has he enveloped the whole series at this point so no one can hear Berserk music that's not like his and say, oh, that's just not Berserk? Because that was the fear I had going into the anime sound, the new anime soundtrack was, well, sure, it doesn't sound like Suzumu, but for me personally, it doesn't work even independent of that. You know, that's how I felt about it. Well, <laughs> um, like I said, it's hard to stream off of him, especially for fans. Yeah. We're used to Susumu Hirasawa. We're used to listening to synthesizers and more of the uh, 80s-style yeah. little soundboards that he uses. Um, but overall, I mean, it can go either way. <clears throat> and, you know, you can use me as an example. I did something that was, or you know, purely or attempting to emulate an orchestra. Um, and for what I've gathered, people liked it. People did associate it with Berserk, so it is doable. Mm. Um, it's just people's reactions, you know, people have to be a little bit more open-minded about that because right. especially in this new anime, I mean, and, and I remember reading in the threads, uh, 
people stating that no, you know, it just doesn't it doesn't feel like Berserk. And I mean, you have to look at it from the perspective of the composer. You know, he's not doing the song for the source, which is the manga. He's doing the you know, he's doing the the composition for the anime and you have to look at how that flows with this new anime. Um yeah. and I'm using only this as an example because back then um when Hill of Source was made, there was only what a speculation that there was a new anime coming out. So right. Uh, you know, is it hard to stream off of it? Yes. Uh, me making songs now for Berserk for for you guys, um, it is a challenge because people are very used to him, and I can't say that there's a lot of you know a lot of stories out there. And correct me if I'm wrong. I know of very little you know mangas or comics or novels that associate this one particular artist, you know, to do the sounds for either a movie or an animation or right. whatever's been out there. So we've been, I guess the best way to say it is we've been spoiled yeah. um, with Hirasawa because he's definitely been there in every single project. So now with this new anime where we've only seen that he only did what one track, which is the, the, the main theme. Yeah, we did one track for this movie. It remains to be seen if he'll do more for the additional movies. Exactly. So, I mean, I, I say, I, I think, and this is my perspective in Azil or Griffith, correct me if I'm wrong, but it it almost feels like we're just um, spoiled with him. Uh, yeah. You know, a lot of people find it very hard to associate other types of music with Berserk these days because of that. Right, and that's what I was trying to get at. I think Azil has some thoughts about that, but I don't want to speak for him. <laughs> well, no, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I always thought that uh, while uh, Hirazawa is a, I mean, he's a good composer, and what he did for the TV series, it was pretty good. It's, it, I think orchestral music has potential to to fit Berserk. I mean, it's an epic story, a story which uh, is a, has a fantasy setting. So I think orchestral music fits Berserk pretty well. All the uh, all we need is somebody who can uh, you know exploit it properly. So in that regard, uh, even though I know uh, Walter specifically, you don't like the new uh, OST for the movie very much, but I didn't find it all that bad, even though it's uh, a bit generic mm-hmm. sounding. And uh, I think there's, there's potential to do something really cool, you know, with an orchestra, you know, as far as uh, the movies are concerned. I guess the strongest thing I can say about that. Uh, the strongest insult I can levy against the new soundtrack is that it left no impression on me. I mean, what else do you need to say at that point? If it's a movie soundtrack about Berserk, one of my favorite series of all time, and I listen to the soundtrack a couple times and it leaves it leaves me with nothing. I mean, I, I, that's all i got to say. Even Blood and Guts? Even Blood and Guts. <laughs> yeah, Blood and Guts. It left a scar on my soul, but it, it wasn't a positive impression. <laughs> Yeah, I listened to it uh, last night uh, again, uh, like a pretty detailed listen in anticipation of this conversation. And I actually I agree with uh, As. I actually uh, I liked it. I thought it was very sort of slick and professional. And he said something to me that I definitely thought was true. Like it reminded him of like a lot of other sort of soundtracks. Like yeah. I was, I, I heard a lot of themes in there that sounded like I don't know stuff that I heard from like I don't know. Eve and Gellan and Escaflone and also, uh, like, even, like, Batman the Animated Series, I would hear things like, you know, sort of like, oh, that sounds kind of like Batman, like, music. Like, I think the first track, actually, on the album. It's the same composer for Evan Gellian. Oh, yeah, well, that, okay, it makes perfect sense then, because, uh, yeah, I totally, I, and I haven't even listened to those soundtracks, like, since high school, but I can remember it. Right. But actually, I wanted to ask uh, Nomad, what do you, what do you think of the new soundtrack? 
I liked it. Um, I mean, is it does it stand out? No. Um, I don't think. But again, I mean, this is something that I would have to see the anime with the songs and see how that flows. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm not. I'm not really sold on it. It is a well done. Um, there's a couple of songs that I really liked uh, that I actually was able to associate. But they're like the minor songs, and I'm trying to come up with the name of the the actual track that was. But um, there's one that that uh, he uses uh, a lot of synthesizers, and that's that's how I've always envisioned. It, it almost reminded me of you know I picture the the uh, flow of uh, causality, if you will, mm. um, as I was you know listening to it. It's not a bad uh, soundtrack. The one thing that I will nitpick about it is that if this project, say, if the, the new anime, if it actually comes out and, you know, they move on to another arc, they, I mean, I don't know why, I don't know if this is a Western thing, but it, it lacks a theme. It lacks, yep. um, uh. you know, you want to have that theme to associate specific or at least key characters in the story. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be standoffish, uh, it doesn't have to be uh, anything strong, but the audience needs to uh, definitely identify specific uh, characters with certain songs, certain melodies. And sure, and I mean, you could, what you could do is you have a, a character theme, and then later on in the series, you have a variation on that theme to show, you know, how that character's changed. For example, would be exactly. one way to do it. So exactly, a, a good example would be, and I'm sorry, I'm using this. This is the worst example that I can use, but it's the most recent that I've uh, I heard was uh, God, I can't believe I'm saying this. Uh, Transformers, the <laughs> our, little, our, our friend Michael Bay. Um, yeah, that, I mean, <laughs> I this, I despise the movies. I really do. It's fine. Um, Continue. I, I saw the third one, and I have to say, I mean, that's kind of like what I'm, I was referring to. He uses the same melodies, you know. Okay, here are the good guys coming. So you have the song, like their Transformers introduction song. When something bad happens, it's the same song, but just slow-tempoed. Um, right, right. And the audience, you know, <clears throat> if you're not paying attention, a lot of people don't even realize what they're listening to. Um, and, and I think it works. It needs to have that uh, identity. You know, people have to be able to identify, especially, again, if it's going to move to other arcs. I mean, we God knows how many animes in total this ends up being so you know i would play it safe and i would say okay well i'll definitely focus on songs to identify yeah, at least again the the key characters and such so right is there's two ways to go about uh, a soundtrack you can have something which is you know more atmospheric which we can see nowadays in games where the tracks are not especially memorable but they fit the, the movie and during the scenes they, they add to the atmosphere and there are tracks which are memorable and which you can listen to I mean outside of the movie or the game or anything and they'll stick with you and, and they're good to be listened to and I think uh, this soundtrack I don't know what you guys think I think Aria is supposed to be a, a song you can you know identify and listen to outside of the experience of the movie and I think the rest of the soundtrack is more it's it's 
was thought of more to be uh, in addition to the movie to add atmosphere and not necessarily to stand on its own. Yeah, I mean that's how most movie soundtracks are. Is if you listen to just the soundtrack, it's like CD, for example, you won't necessarily get the same emotional connection as if you're watching the actions yeah. associated with the music. And I understand that, and I also acknowledge that not knowing what scenes are associated with the music is kind of a detriment to my understanding of the, the film itself. But you know. All I can do right now is judge what I have in front of me, and that is hearing yeah, just course. the music itself. So, I mean, I look forward to seeing the movie and seeing how they incorporate the music. The little bit that I have seen of the music in association with uh, the scenes uh, is actually pretty cool. The, the, it's actually, in the 10-minute clip, I think it was, they showed uh, Julius and Guts, the assassination sequence. There's a very moody music that's played there that fits really well with the scene, the candlelight going out and the wind and the darkness of that scene. And it, it seems kind of neat. And... The Zod thing was also kind of cool from what I've seen of it. So and I look forward to seeing the music with the animation, but I don't like what I hear, you know? Mm. No. Well, touching well. off on uh, on that stuff, like when I listened to it the other night, like I didn't actually look at the track listings, like unless something really caught my ear. But for the most part, I was just sort of listening to it as, as an album, you know, just going straight through. And a lot of the times I wouldn't know when one track ended and another one began, mm. depending on... Uh, you know, what was going on musically. And I did notice, like, some recurring themes and things, especially, like, well, Blood and Guts, there's, like, an opening and a closing one, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, it touches back on the original. But uh, to get to what uh, Nomad and sort of what uh, Az also touched on with, like, uh, Hirasawa and being spoiled. And, like, yeah, each one of, like, Hirasawa's songs, like, they don't run together. It's like each one of them also works as, like, like what As said about Area. Like, you can listen to it outside, and it's, like, this sort of unique piece. And, like, it's, like, each one was, like, it, you know, it was its own, like, little singularity where it's, like, wow, this is a really cool little piece of music. Whereas this was much more uniform and, like, you know, much more like a traditional score. Right. Which, you know, so that's probably, you know, it's not going to leave the same impression. I mean, I think it's hard just because, yeah, it's, like... To that standard, it's not going to be able to match that. But I, I don't think it's trying to. So right, yeah. I think, yeah, I, I thought it was all right. Sure. I guess all, all I keep trying to drive it is, is Berserk changed to Suzumu? We've all kind of talked about that. But I think that's a big issue with the series right now. Like you say, you're spoiled by Suzumu. I like to think that Berserk's music can evolve over time, depending on whatever other adaptations come out and the game soundtracks that may come out. But... You know, I think Suzumu should always play a role in it. Like, I, th- I think he's doing fine. The, the, his involvement here is great to me. Like, he, he has a touch of flavor of Suzumu in the beginning, and the rest leave it to somebody else. I don't have a problem with that necessarily, you know? Well, there's one thing is that he might not want to keep doing Berserk forever, you know? Sure. As an artist. So, yeah, I mean, but beyond... So, so far, he's been amenable to doing a track or two per Berserk adaptation, you know? So Yeah, of course. Well, he went to... The whole thing to you know the whole thing again, then two tracks, then one. Yep. So yeah, well, I, I mean I hope he keeps doing them, but my point is, let, let, we have to keep an open mind about other artists working on it because, I, I, like we saw with uh, this movie, he's not going to be doing every Berserk music ever forever. So right, yeah. right. Well, there's one thing we didn't touch upon. It's uh, you know the song from I, which is a ending song, which actually I found it pretty cool. I liked it. Uh, I don't love it. It it grew on me. Let me put it that way. I I certainly didn't like the bits that they chose to show in the little small trailers, but it did grow on me after I heard the full version, particularly when there's a crescendo the song comes to later on in it, and it it builds up to a really great point. 
but I found that a little repetitive before that point. But I mean, it's it's great. I like it a lot more than I initially did. So. Yeah, I mean, my, I just like it, and I, I think overall, even though three different artists uh, walk on the walked on the soundtrack, I, I think I, I would have a pretty positive, you know, opinion of the whole thing, personally. Did you guys want to keep talking about music? Did you have anything more to say? Did we miss anything? Mm, nope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Unless we want to talk about like the the PS2 uh, game and Funny March and all those songs. How oh do they compare? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, or, or or we can just move on to video games. <laughs> these were great. <laughs> <laughs> Some of those actually, I, I'm not going to speak in favor of them, but they're at least they make they make me laugh. Let me put it that way. They, they, <laughs> they entertain they, you. They achieve the desired effect. But they make, left an impression. <laughs> it's certainly pretty embarrassing to hear that associated with Berserk. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some of the lesser the PS2 soundtrack. I mean, I own it. I don't listen to it. I like Sign is amazing. You know, in my opinion, it's probably the height of Suzumu's Berserk work. I love it. I listen to that the rest of my life probably. But the other songs in that soundtrack, eh, you know, even the serious ones, it's like they're—I don't know—they're like approximations. Yeah, like they're trying to be yeah. something, and it's like it's not quite it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah one thing. One thing that I um <clears throat> that I kind of want to get off my chest because as far as the music with Berserk is concerned and everything, I don't know if you guys have realized this. I'm I'm sure most of you have, but when you go on YouTube or when you go to a a search engine and you start looking for Berserk music, and pretty much about 99.9% of the stuff that you find is either polka metal or I just hit puberty metal. It's like all metal, 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 metal. <laughs> yeah. And I have to, you know, and and I confess when. When I finished Hill of Swords, I hesitated to post it because I was like, oh, my, you know, <laughs> I'm doing, you know, a, an orchestra here, you know, and, and I don't think that a lot of people were going to like it. And I wanted to ask Griffith. I mean, Griffith, correct me if I'm wrong, but you play the guitar, correct? Yeah. I mean, what what do you think, you know, I, I don't play the guitar or anything like that. And I, I, I've, I've noticed that a lot of your taste in music is um, you like a lot of old rock and stuff like that, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, like old, like classic rock and like some uh, thrash metal and also uh, like a lot of video game music, especially uh, if it's like made into rock and roll music. <laughs> okay, so I mean, how do, how would you envision um, some of the stuff of Berserk? Because, I mean, variety is key here and, and I kind of wanted to get your, um, I guess, your feedback on on Berserk per se. I mean, whether you know, say if you have to choose between a specific genre to describe Berserk, what would that be? Okay, well, like you said, it's like it's kind of hard to like disassociate from uh, Hirosawa at this point. So, I mean, that's always what comes first in my head. And then what As said about orchestral stuff works. But if you're like talk like specifically like genre sort of music or like songs and like maybe popular music or rock and roll. Like, it's actually a band that I find that fits often has been, like, Metallica, actually. And, like, I'm sure there's probably a million Metallica Berserk music videos and stuff, <laughs> just because there's a million Metallica everything music videos. But, uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's I don't know. I think it's, like, Hetfield's voice is good for, you know, it's good to sort of put him as, like, cast him as guts because he's got a, you know, deep, growly voice. That sort of thing. And a lot of their songs touch on just all that weird, like, especially the early stuff, like resentment. And, you know, there's a lot of violence. 
And so, yeah, I've always found them to be like a band, like where both the music and uh, the lyrical content sort of fits the series a lot. And yeah, and I'll listen to them a lot while I'm like reading. Well, this is the, this this, this, this is the predicament of berserk music in my opinion is because a lot of, like you said, like Nomad said, and like Chris said, a, a lot of times fans associated it with metal, particularly for the more intense scenes in the series, but berserks, like the, the, the emotional, range of the series is so much vaster than that that it that if you just you know subscribe to one type of genre it doesn't fit and that's that's the, the predicament i think the series is in is it doesn't really fit one particular genre particularly because yeah. mirror incorporates so many different cultures and countries and in this style stylized uh so i mean yeah the the metal music stuff uh, sometimes it works like any of the like i think griff's pointed out that the the griffith and the guts relationship stuff and the beast and guts a lot of Metallica songs work really well for that lyrically. Especially like the more melodic ones too, yeah. because it has that balance where they're doing like the, a lot of like what Nomad was talking about is a lot of those berserk music videos. It's like the most hardcore like song in the world where, you know, with like screaming <laughs> vocals and right. it's like, there's no balance to it where it's like, well, this doesn't really, this doesn't really score the series very well. Yeah. It's like, yeah. it's, it's like one emotion. It's exactly. only one note. And that's all I meant was there's a lot more nuance in the series and, and range than just those yeah. intense scenes. I think a lot of fans just kind of forget about that and just think Berserk's about blood and guts, so metal <laughs> all the time. You know? Blood and guts. Yeah. And blood. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we're back to talk about Skull Knight. The last time we talked about him, we had left off at volume 16, and we were about to launch into volume 18. And Skull Knight makes a very significant appearance here at the end of the volume, mostly to lead into what happens with the Incarnation Ceremony later on. What he tells Guts in these segments really foreshadow the next, like, you know, three to four volumes worth of content. So where did you guys want to start with this? Because my my hang-up with this section is that it's not necessarily very revealing for SK as a character, which is what we're focusing on in this discussion here. It's mostly exposition for what's to come. There's still a lot to learn about this uh, in understanding his character, but well, well, where did you guys, where did you guys want to start? Uh, well, it is him at like his most expositiony. I think like it really doesn't add anything to his, even like his initial appearance. It's like almost for total exposition, but I mean, it's obviously also introducing him and you know every you know everything about him is you know at that point is new and about his character but this one it really is just him giving a prophecy and then uh leaving but i think the one thing that stands out and we might have uh, chatted about it a little bit before was uh just the the fa- the way he sort of describes the prophecy the way he tells him you know you're going to have to make a choice and also the way he the metaphor he uses for the reflection of the eclipse on the water and how he might not just be a shadow of a fish, but maybe a fish that can make waves, you know, very literal and figurative. And it's sort of a nice little metaphor, maybe describing, you know, what Gut's mission can be and what Skull Knight's also doing. It's sort of, you know, almost like not quite a mission statement, but, I mean, you can extrapolate it that way. One of the things Skull Knight says, uh, talks about the incarnation ceremony... The way he describes it, I wanted to see what you guys thought about this. I mean, this is something we've talked about many, many times in the past, but for review, the ceremony occurs every 1,000 years or once in 1,000 years. The distinction being, of course, has this happened before? 
Well, he technically he says once in a thousand years. I mean, mm. we can't we can't be sure, but I mean, what he says doesn't prove that it happened before. Right. It's not, it's not okay. impossible, but it's not conclusive one way or the other. Yeah, basically, yeah, it happens once in a thousand years, so it could mean. But yeah, I mean, it could go. It could just be way. a way of saying it's rare, basically. No, 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 yeah. no. I, I think it's. I think the number itself is significant. I don't. I, I think the one thousand part significant. I don't think it's just. Well, like, like it can only happen once in a thousand years, but yeah, not necessarily yeah. that it did happen. What, what is really? Yeah, exactly. You know, actually, Griffiths, that's exactly it. Like it's, it's something which can only happen once in a thousand years. Exactly. Not necessarily that it happens every thousand years. Like, yeah. yeah. Right. And anyway, I mean, adding to that, the thousand years thing. Of course, the God Hand are born once every two hundred sixteen years. Yes. So I mean, there's a little bit of math involved in that, but it doesn't exactly work all the way. But yeah. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't work at all, actually. Right. Okay. Well, all I'm trying to say is, I, I think that's probably the significance of the 1,000 years. It's probably what he's talking about is the God Hand have a fifth member, and the way he describes the ceremony is that uh, a being from heavenly spheres, once it reaches a concentration point, one who exists should exist in the divine domain. Is the Dark Horse translation? But he's talking about the the domain of the God Hand can be incarnated once in a thousand years. Yeah. So specifically related to the God Hand, and I just wanted to see if you guys, do you think it's only God Hand that can be incarnated, or do you think Femto just swooped in there and grabbed it, or is this all related to the God Hand in there? No, I'm pretty sure it's related to the God Hand specifically. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. like, like the other kinds of ceremonies, and he said specifically that the incarnation ceremony would be mirroring the occultation ceremony. Uh-huh, sure. So I'm pretty sure, you know, the two are related, and it's, you know, there are many, many ways in which it's related to the God Hand and the Eater of Evil, including if the title is being called uh, Shadow of Eater. So right. I, I think the whole thing is bound to causality and it's all related to the God Hand. Yeah, definitely. There's no doubt to me. Right. Yeah. I mean, just practically speaking, even if it were possible for something else, it's like we're we're not going to see that anyway. So for our for berserk purposes, you know, it's it's going to be God Hand related. Sure. Sure. Anyway, you know, when you talk about the character, you said it was, you know, the scene was mostly exposition. Well, I would say that we do learn a bit more about the Skull Knight during this scene. And oh, that's I th- right. Yeah, well, aside from the fact, what I was referring to is the fact that Puck notices that uh, the Skull Knight has an elfin aura about him. Right, yeah. So, along with the fact he doesn't make the brand bleed, it's a confirmation that he's a first character that is good, not a bad guy, mm-hmm. and it's it's a hint to, towards what will come later on, maybe in a film. So, yeah, it's, a I think, pretty significant as far as the character is concerned. And, yeah, absolutely, and, and it, it puts to rest a lot of the early theories about what the, the nature of the Skull Knight is. Yep. Was he a former <clears throat> apostle or something like that, you know? Yeah, so. def- definitely. And I also think the fact he does come out and give a theory, I mean, give a, a prophecy, not really a prophecy, but explains to Gus what's going to happen, I think it contributes in building his character in that he's a character who knows a lot about a lot of things, and he reiterates the fact he's there to fight against a god, and I think it helps establishing his character further. You know, it's one of the yeah. biggest times where he really comes out and he tells Gus how it's going to do, you know, to happen, what he can do, and actually, like the fact he he's very pragmatic in what he tells Gus. <clears throat> like he tells him these events which are going to occur, they can't be changed. They can't be. You can't help it. It's going to happen. It's going to to happen again. It will be repeated. 
Right. And then Guts, you know, goes uh, goes on and said, no, I won't, you know, I won't stand for it, whatever. And then the Skullnight tells him, yeah, it's true. With your condition, with the brand you have, and he actually, it's the first time he tells him that the brand is not necessarily all bad. Like, right. it, can, it can be used to his advantage. And in this case, it can be used because by making him, like Griff, you know, said earlier, <clears throat> instead of just being a shadow reflected on the water, like the shadow of the moon, uh, he can be a fish creating ripples in it. And so modifying the events ever so slightly, which is actually what I believe Guts eventually did. Uh, so, yeah. And once again, it's a scene where Sky ex- exhibits extremely detailed information about the inner workings of the Berserk universe, which to me yeah. has always been very curious. And we're going we're gonna to touch on that later on when we hit 24. But I, I, I always wonder about exactly how he knows so much. And it's, it's more than, like we said last podcast, a watcher would know. I mean, he's talking about literally yeah. the, the ways all these <laughs> events interact. And in a once-in-a-thousand-year ceremony, how could he possibly know the inner workings of that? So, well, he has he been living more. for for a thousand years. So. Uh-huh. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, even though it's not sure it happened before, it might have happened. So, right. Yeah. We, okay. we can't know. Well, yeah, go ahead. No, uh, I was just going to say, I mean, obviously also, I mean, he has sort of connections with people that would study those things too, if not himself uh, and Flora. Indeed. Yeah, of course. And, uh, well, we'll, another, we'll get to the, Flora in 24. Yeah. And you mentioned something interesting as about how, you know, how despite it being mostly exposition, it did establish a little more of his character. Now that you mentioned it, it also, I think it, it is an important scene for establishing him more as a mentor to Guts. Yeah. You know, sort of where Guts isn't in trouble now. They're just sort of meeting. Like before it was always, you know, before he had that cryptic prophecy where Guts was, you know, just in the woods. And then he, and then Guts really needed his help. Like it was just sort of, you know, helping him out. This time it was just them meeting, you know, by chance, I think Skull Knight says. Yeah. Well, that like he wasn't even looking for him. They were just going the same way. And they just sort of exchange information a little bit more as like peers. This Re- time. Regarding their meeting, what's the expression on Gut's face whenever he knows it's the Skull Knight? <laughs> it's always sort of like you know, he's not. It doesn't look like he's happy to see him. Right. Like, I wonder know, if ah. he. I wonder if he kind of just resents the fact that this supernatural creature has to help him. I wonder if he he's just not comfortable being helped like that. Or what do you think well, that relationship he's is? He's said directly to him before, and it sort of touches on what I said again about how Skull Knight's very practical in what he tells him. He kind of tells him what he need, you know, just what you need to know, like on a what you need yeah. to know basis. Yeah. And I think Guts is like, you know, yelled at him before that, like, you know, you just come around and you tell me this, you know, cryptic stuff and I don't understand it. And he says to him, there you go, talking, you know, right. in riddles again or in ways I can't understand. And so, you know, he like I don't know, he's grateful to him, you know, but it's sort of a, a conflict within Guts where he's grateful, but he's also, you know, resentful. Well, right. and there's also the fact Guts in general is not a very polite kind of person. Yeah. And so, so Skull Knight, he's, you know, he speaks like a king would speak to, you know, somebody who's not a king. So <laughs> I, I, th- I think even, even though it's not really conflicting in that aspect, I think even Guts, you know, when they meet on the beach you know, later in volume uh, 28. Yeah, and he's like uh, embarrassed it, because of the way Shirke uh Yeah, and, and he, t- he tells him like, oh, I see you survived. Like, yeah, yeah, fuck yeah. He, yeah, yeah, sure, he survived. You know, I mean, <laughs> was that even doubt that Guts is, you know, so he, I think he's like that with pretty much, you know, everyone and especially with the Skull Knight. Because, yeah, he's probably also a bit, you know, I wouldn't say embarrassed, but he doesn't necessarily like to be helped out of uh, bad situations. Azil, can you speak a little bit about the way the Skull Knight talks? I'd written down some notes about that, but I didn't want to go off the rails too much. The way I understand it is 
the wording and the dialect that Skull Knight uses is very ancient. He uses ancient words that aren't in common usage anymore. Is that right? Well, it depends, but mostly, yeah, I mean, he speaks like somebody who's old. But, you know, then again, Zod also speaks like an old man. I mean, right. you know, and, and Void as well. Yeah, and, and Ganishka. I, I, I think uh, I'm not the you know, foremost expert on the question, but I believe Ganishka used some of the most formal languages of the series. And of mm. course, Void during the eclipse, he, he spoke also very formally. Um, but yeah, the Skull Knight, I mean, in his tone and his speech, the words he used, you can tell he's a character who first is very old and also is an, a noble character. Mm. And while we're on that topic, you know, his name himself, itself, the Skull Knight, which uh, in, in Japanese is Tokuro no Kishi. Mm -hmm. uh, Kishi means knight, and Tokuro, it means skull, but not just skull. It means a weathered skull, like a skull, a skull which is worn out. So in itself, his name itself refers to the fact he's a very old character. Ah. Yeah, that's really, I've always thought that was interesting. Is it, it, the language and the, the wording itself kind of ages him. And yeah. other characters as well. I always thought that was fascinating. It's, it's not a generic word for skull. You know, it's, a, it's very it's specific for a wizard skull. So yeah. right. Mura went for it very you know, deliberately, and, which is why you know, the translation, which is used by Dark Horse, for example, is uh, just a shame. You know, it really doesn't make sense. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I know. And that, I always try to look up the full meaning of a kanji or a character whenever I come across it. Because, and I don't even have a great understanding of Japanese, but it's always great to get that insight. So, Well, yeah, the, the Skeleton Knight translation is terrible. Like, God. even Bone Knight would be better, because at least the word bone, even though, despite the horrible pun it makes, is that it, it conjures that, it evokes that feeling of, you know, bone, old, you, you know, that weatheredness, you know, to the bone, sort of things like that, which I guess is the same thing, rather than, like, being, you know, just a generic, like, skeleton, or, like, oh, cool, a skull... I mean, it is emphasizing that that yeah. old, yeah, yeah, that sort of oldness that uh, I was just talking about. But I mean, you know, I mean, it's not even skeleton knight; they call it knight of skeleton. So right. it's just, I mean, oh, yeah, that's right. From the from the beginning, it's clear that it, it's not, you know, it it wasn't, you know, the person who came up with it just doesn't speak English, you know. So yeah. Yep. Anyway, you know, other than uh, the talk about the incarnation uh, ceremony, which was to come, I think uh, in that scene, it's also interesting that the Skull Knight ex basically explains to Gus what uh, his dream meant. You know, he tells him, ah, did, did you see a falcon? And Gus, you know, he you know, thinks back to what he saw when the stake to which Casca was burning in the dream, right. you know, burns <clears throat> into a hawk. And he tells him, yeah, you know, that, that, you know, that was a falcon. And then Gus makes a connection with Femto. Yeah. And he's now, oh, fuck, you know, yeah, he's going to be there. So, yeah, I, I thought that was interesting. It, it happens, you know, quite a few times in the series where a character will uh, be shown something. He'll have, you know, either a premonition or a dream or something, but he won't understand it right away. And he only realizes what it meant later on. It happens a few times in the series, and that was one such occasion. So I, I think it's interesting. One last thing I wanted to note about 18 was regarding that actual, that, that moment actually when Skull Knight tells Guts, this is just a small, small thing, but look, if you turn to the page where there's the, the image of the eclipse just above it, there's uh, Guts' eye and below it, the Skull Knight's mouth. The Skull Knight's mouth opens right then. I, I always assumed that, you know, he kept his mouth shut when he talked, and I just thought that was a very strange panel where he opens his mouth to say the Shoku or the eclipse. I thought that was a strange moment for him to open his mouth, but yeah, yeah, it's true. Well, 
Yeah. I mean, I think it was really more about the imagery there. Just, yeah. you know, like just the skeleton, you know, with the mouth open, like teeth, you know, it just, it sort of goes with the eclipse imagery. Right. And yeah, I never, I don't know. I never really assumed either way that his like mouth was closed, but I guess, yeah, I guess I know what you mean. I didn't, I just never really thought about it, but yeah, it is usually closed when he's giving dialogue. Right. Is, and, and there's not much to even say about it. I just, it just struck me during the reread. It's strange. Yeah. Are you, are you guys cool with hanging up 18, moving on to 20? Well, I have one last thing to say about it. Okay. Yeah, so is do that, I. Uh, you know, it's the first time the Skull Knight wants guts that he won't be able to save Casca and fight his, for his revenge. So it's the first time he tells him he'll have to make a choice. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's a very important thing because it's a, it became a recurrent, uh, I mean, dilemma for guts afterwards. So it's the first time the Skull Knight tells him, yeah, you won't be able to, to save her and to get a revenge. It's either one or the other. All right. Well, two more things now. Uh, based on what you just said, it's interesting how his prophecies for Guts become more personal as time goes by. Like, at first it was all just, I mean, obviously it was personal as death, but it was like, it was about major events going on more, and then it became more about, uh, like, you know, it became, yeah, you're, you're not going to be able to save her and get your revenge, and now it's evolved into, like, almost purely relationship, you know, advice, you know, where he says, like, what you want might not be what she wants. And it's interesting how Guts, you know, personal life, is so converging with like the major events it just sort of shows that and it's just something that occurred to me there but the other thing i wanted to mention was when he mentioned the dream you know the falcon dream do you guys yep. think that skull knight had the dream too or do you think he just heard about it like through it's other good, sources? It's a good question yeah it's and it's a very like good what, question. W- what would that dream be for him because that would be i'd love to see that i'd love to know <laughs> i have no yeah. idea no idea dude I, I think I think he did have the dream or perceive it, and you know more if, even more than normal humans because he, he's you know he, he's an astral being. I mean, or at least he's connected to the astral realm. So I think he was aware of the dream, maybe even in a much more potent way than uh, humans were. Mm. You might you know maybe it was related to the Behirid Apostle because he seems very particularly interested in that whenever he gets there. That's right. So. Yeah. Well, at the same time, stalking him. Yeah, I think the Skull Knight, you know, he thinks, I mean, to a bit speculate about how his thought process works, I think he knew something was needed to bring, you know, the Falcon back into the world. So he must probably have been looking for it, watching, yeah. searching, and I think just through that process, he could find the Beherit Apostle was there. And basically, you see him, he essentially stalks it and waits for the right moment and strikes at, at him afterwards. Well, we'll talk about that later. Oh, well, actually, so, it's a perfect transition into 20. Well, because I have one more thing to say, okay, finally. You know, you know, I found Puck's observations about the Skull Knight to be pretty interesting. I don't know if you guys noticed, but it was the first time Puck saw him. And he's like, oh, yeah. who's this guy? Your friend with a monster. <laughs> yeah, he, he's basically... Yeah, I, I found it interesting because Puck has a reaction that Guts also had at first. He's like, "Wow, who's this guy? Yeah. Is, he, is he a good guy?" So yeah, I found it interesting. It is kind of cute how Puck kind of stays towards Guts as well. Like he's kind of scared of him at first. Well, yeah. and also I feel like Puck sort of is like, yeah, he's sort of asking the audience questions like, "Oh, you're friends with a monster? That's weird. You know, what's what's the deal with this guy anyway? You know, it's yeah. sort of things that you'd naturally be wondering." Well, Skull Knight, Skull Knight acknowledges in response to Puck as well, saying it's a strange thing for him to carry around. Maybe you have a connection to the elves. <laughs> yeah, which one of our older members, Paradise Lost, said no. Meant <laughs> Guts go was an elf. <laughs> don't, don't go there. <laughs> Had to. 
had to bring it up. Well, anyway, I, I think we're transitioning perfectly to Chorney because this just continues the, the conversation we've just been having. Uh, yeah. Skull Knight goes into Albion and the Tower of Conviction, literally stalking the Behirid Apostle. Yep. Uh, makes, a, makes a move right as uh, Luca and Nina are having a little tense moment. Uh, Luca tr- chooses to fall. Skull Knight literally jumps off the tower, rides down the tower, jumps off the tower to rescue her. Yeah, well, actually... Was it a coincidence? Uh, yeah, I, I would say, you know, first thing, you know, I, f- I find the scene where he's, you know, stalking the, the apostle and attacking, I, I find it extremely cool looking. It is, yeah. So, yeah. And also, the Skull Knight looks very ominous there. You know, he, he looks yeah. like what he must look like to his enemies, which is, you know, not a very reassuring <laughs> well, sight. He looks very excited when he has his, his, his uh, sword close to his face in that bottom panel after the shot. Yeah. It's like, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> What's his so, intention here? Why, what do you think it is that's drawing him to kill the Behirid Apostle? Why is he, he well, again, he doesn't normally intervene when it comes to individual apostles. So here he's choosing to intervene. Well, there's, there's one thing, you know, to, to, to go back to what you said about Luca, mm-hmm. I think the buried apostle flees and the skull knight, you know, goes after him. Mm-hmm. Then Luca, Luca's falling and he saves her. But, you know, what's interesting is that he, he did enough to save her. Of course, yeah. Well, um, he, yeah. he does. And, and it, again, it shows that he's not cool-blooded. It's one more clue that he's a good character. He had no reason. She's of no use to him, but he saves her anyway. So I think, yeah, you know, he, he, he does it. It shows... It's a, I mean, it's a clue about his character. It is He's, absolutely is, and there's a line he says right after he catches her and she's looking around. She, he asks her, "Girl, why did you choose to die?" And that line yeah. really stuck out to me during my reread. Why is he so concerned with what her choice was? Like yeah, to well, me, I, go ahead. I think he's in. Oh, sorry. Now I was going to say, he's not even concerned, but curious, you know? Like he's having a talk. Right. That's, a I mean, talk. that's what I meant. Is curious. Yeah, like yeah. her, her answer. Like to me, it, <laughs> it's not really what he was looking for necessarily. Because I think yeah. the reason this line struck me was because last podcast we're talking about the Skull Knight being a character who chose not to die. You know, he kept living on regardless of what happened to him. He's a thousand years old, and he encounters a character who he thinks at first tried to commit suicide. So I'm wondering if that really resonated with him. It's like, why would you try to kill yourself? Why would you throw your life away? So. Well- yeah, I'm not sure he was asking her if she, uh, I mean she she didn't really try to kill herself. And, yeah, uh, I I interpreted it differently. I interpreted okay. it like, you know, well first she thought it was death catching her, which was funny. Uh but also just I think he was just asking her like I think he came, you know, he comes away impressed with her and I think that's where it started actually because I think he recognized sort of what was going on. And this is just my interpretation that you know, he was asking her like why did you you know, why did you do that? And I think he recognized that she might have been making, you know, like she was making a sacrifice. Yeah. Why she yeah. Did that. And I think he kind of, you know, was asking her, like, I think he was curious as to sort of why she would do something so normal. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I totally agree. I, I think it, he sees it as a sacrifice, which it was. And I think her answer is not genuine. You know, I mean, she, she says, oh, yeah, I thought maybe I wouldn't die. But, you know, I, I don't think it's the truth. I think she let go. She didn't really expect to live. Right. So she's, she's just bullshitting him, and he probably knows it. So I think it was an interesting interaction. Yeah. Anyway, you were talking earlier about why the Skull Knight tries to kill the Beherita person. And yes. it's actually, I find it very interesting because despite what he tells Guts, which is that, you know, the events can't be stopped, that it will happen. He's trying to do it himself anyway. Like right. he's he's attacking the buried apostle. I think because he knows 
he's a key to you know Femto's incarnation. I don't and actually know because later on in this sequence, he's he his, he didn't know his full form until later. He he's, he makes he makes a comment about it uh, after he tries to attack him the second time. Whenever after the Behirat talks to Luca, yeah. he says but the, his form or something like that. He only notices it then, or he only comments on it then. I'm sure I'm trying to find the line, but well, go ahead. Yeah, I don't really know what you mean. So okay, well, keep keep talking, and I'll find it. Well, anyway, I was going to say I think he's trying to change the events anyway himself, and. Uh, yeah, well, he, he's even though he at the bottom of the tower when they get there, even though he grossly overpowers the buried apostle, I mean, the, the apostle tries to attack him, he just, you know, slashes all his, you know, uh, I would say some kind of. Uh, his like tentacles or tentacles. Yeah, or his appendices, whatever, he just slashes them off. Yeah. And he, when the buried apostle, you know, tries to flee, he just, you know, wounds him. Yep. But he, he's unable to kill him and he comments on it. Directly uh, after that, though. That the line yeah. that I'm talking about is directly after that. Okay, yeah, well, have you, have you got the line? Yeah, he says, uh, Skullknight says, not bad, but such wounds, he can't get far. And then the next panel is close-up of his face, and he says, however, that form of his, dot, 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 as if he only realized then that it was the shape of a Behirat. Well, that's, that sort of goes with, like, my original interpretation of the scene, which is, I didn't know, th- I don't know that he had a plan when he was attacking the Behirat Apostle, that he just saw, like, what he recognized clearly as, like, you know, an evil being and that he was sort of going to investigate and probably kill it. Yeah. But, and that he later came to realize sort of his significance. But at the, at the time I feel like my, my just initial interpretation was just that he was like investigating it and, you know, with intent to use extreme force. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, that's the only explanation I can come up with as well. If he didn't indeed know that the Behirat was going to be the source of the, crack in the world, so to speak. But I still think, like, I still agree with Asdit. I mean, he was still there, you know, I think that's what he was investigating to see what he could do. Like, he was still there to try and, you know, right. mess things up if he could. And yeah. intervene yeah. in any way he could. Well, he, he knew killing him certainly wouldn't, you know, <laughs> help. Yeah. <laughs> so there's one thing I'll say is that, well, first, I'm not sure about that line's translation, actually. When you say form... Uh, Okay. I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I can't tell you for sure. I would have to to get it checked. But uh, I'm not sure he was really taking talking about its shape. You know, like his body shape. The fact he looks like an, a buried basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> even though you know beyond that, I think the the shape of the buried apostle, the fact he looks like a buried. I I don't think it was necessarily what tipped Skull Knight. The fact that he was going to be, you know, to contribute to Femto's incarnation. I think, well, he knows a lot of things without really, uh, without us having any explanation why he does know them. And I think the Barrett Apostle being the only, you know, Apostle in the vicinity, I, I believe he knew in a way that he was related and he was going to, to participate to that, you know, incarnation. Sure. I, I, I well, buy that, yeah. He could, yeah, and you know, he could even if even if he was making a line about his form, he could have recognized what he was before and just yeah. make, been making that comment, just sort of yeah. you know to himself or to her, like offhanded, like you know, yeah, just yeah. you know to reiterate, you know, yeah, to mention why he's concerned about him in the first place. So yeah, yeah there's there's different ways to interpret that. Right. Yeah, that's yeah, I, I agree. That's what I meant exactly. So the. Uh, the Behirat Apostle makes off with Luca and brings him to her, her to his cave, where he, you know, wants to give make make her his witness, basically, as to his motivations for why he's doing this. But the one thing I wanted to point out in this scene, even though it's not related to Skull Knight, was 
there's this interesting technique Miura uses a couple times where he'll lead into saying something significant and then omit the actual wording of it. In this particular sequence, the here it says uh, he's talking about the definitive missing piece between the old world and the new. And then turn the page, it has the focus of this makeshift falcon uh, icon, and it says namely, and then he, you never actually see what he says. If you fast forward, it goes past gut sequence. It goes back to Luca. When it comes back to Luca, she just says, no, that couldn't possibly be. But I guess you know what, what, it's, what it's not spelling out is that it's referring to, I, I read that as the falcon will come to Earth or something like that. What did you guys think? Well, you know, when she's, you know, she witnesses uh, the symbol of the falcon he did, I think she recognizes that it's the same symbol Mm-hmm. Than the ones uh, you know, Holy See is using. Of course, yeah. That's so, not... but what do you think he's not saying? I, I guess is what I'm saying. Obviously, it's a Holy See symbol. I mean, there's no questioning. Well, what yeah, he's... he's referring to Femto. I mean, when he says, you know, the whole this whole thing is all about Femto, uh, Femto Griffiths. Right. But... but what do you think he tells Luca? What is it that she's responding to when she says, "No, that couldn't possibly." I think he actually says the fa- the falcon will come down to earth or something like that. It's the only, yeah. only thing that makes sense with her reaction and her face still being on the imagery of the falcon in that in that, that frame. So yeah, it might it could it could just be yeah, like that makes sense, and it could also be like maybe you know the way this is so twisted. You know, right. this is such a twisted sort of you know way. You know, it's like made of skin. You know, his version of the falcon, everything, and just maybe. I don't think of Luca as being like a particularly religious girl, but you know, she might just sort of see this as like, no, it can't be like this, you know, just sort of responding to sort of the evil nature right. of what he's talking about mixed in with what everyone sort of sees as the pure religion that they're all following. I- I'm not sure she's really, I mean, it could be many things, but to me, her reaction fits with what he's saying because it's, I mean, all of it is, you know... But he doesn't finish his sentence, though, is what, is what I'm trying to say. He doesn't actually, fin- he doesn't actually say well, the thing that is the definitive missing piece in the old world. In the new well, world. you know, we, we don't see it, but it doesn't mean he doesn't say it. Well, yeah, that's what, I'm, that's what I've been saying, is that I think he does say something, and I wondered what that was, that's all. Yeah, but my, what I'm saying is basically, you, it, it could be a lot of different things. I think her reaction fits his general, you know, what he's saying in general. Right. It doesn't have to be. I don't think her reaction has to be specifically to what he said. You know. Okay. Well, that, I, I didn't want to get too sidetracked with it. It was just one thing okay. I thought was interesting. And then Skull Knight jumps down. The way he very cool is moment. Awesome. Yeah. It's yeah. That's coolest, that's great. It's probably second coolest appearance since the eclipse. You know. <laughs> he actually. You know what he. You know who he reminds me of when the way he drops in there. Rakshas later. Oh yeah, with the, cl- the cloak it, around. Yeah, it's like the cloak with the Head with the first. just the skull face like coming out and coming down at you. Yeah, you know what I really love about this volume is you get to really see the method Skull Knight uses when he attacks his technique. You know, you don't get to see that very often. Usually, he just he's, he, he's you see him in a, a single action pose, and then things start falling apart around him. Yeah, but here you actually see you know the way he's striking and things like that, which is just a neat detail. The thing yeah. I like about the whole episode is like it really is sort of a Skull Knight like side story. I mean, yeah. it's really he becomes it's the it's when he become he becomes the star of the series during this part, right? Like, yeah. and it's really sort of unique in that regard for how long it goes on, and yeah, just he yeah. is the center of attention. It's all his uh, thoughts. Uh, there's also the fact that you know while Skull Knight fights the Beheret Apostle, which is the actual apostle of the place, Guts is fighting yeah. Mosgus and his disciples, which are. Uh, they are minions, basically. I right. mean, they were humans 
who were turned into pseudo-apostle by the Beret Apostle, but Skull Knight is fighting the big bad guy and Guts is fighting the minions. Yeah. So it's, it's, I find it pretty interesting, even though it's a detail and it's not necessarily treated like that, but I find it you know, interesting. Yeah, for sure. And one of the bigger points I wanted to make when this volume comes up right after he slashes and misses the Behirid Apostle, he says, yeah. well, the, the Dark Horse translation is a hesitation in my sword that it's not time to kill him. So I, what I talked about last podcast, but I think we actually got sidetracked in the podcast. We never actually answered it. But do you guys think there's something sentient in his sword that makes him sensitive to those kind of uh, causality things? Or is it merely, you know, that he's straight, straight up missed and then he considered maybe it wasn't his time to die? Well, what do you guys I- think? I think it was more that, and I think we discussed it. And uh, we didn't we didn't finish we, it. We actually got sidetracked. I wasn't doing it. Okay, but I well, think we did we did mention that it was maybe just a way of him saying, you know, like yeah, he, you know, just a way, just an expression, really, that there was nothing magical about the sword. It was just sort of, a, you know, my sword hesitated, you know, okay. like yeah. it was just, mm. yeah. And yeah, you know, I'm not even going into uh, the quality of Dark Horse's translation, uh, I think. It's essentially a reference to the fact he couldn't kill the Beret Apostle, not necessarily because he missed or anything, but it's like causality yeah. d- didn't allow for it to happen. Like, yeah. you know, we, we talked, you know, the last time about uh, the junction of times, you know, you know, moments at which things can happen despite how they're supposed to happen. Sure. And uh, I think in this, in this case, he's reflecting to the fact that, you know, so. Beheret Apostle couldn't die at that moment. And so he didn't kill it, you know, like for that reason. He was not allowed to. Do you think it's similar to when the arrows miss Griffith in volume I was just going to mention that. Yeah, I think it's like, I was going to use that. Like, that's sort of the extreme example of a guy who is so at the center of, like, literally the universe that, you know, those arrows are just, there's no way they will hit him. I mean, I think it's to a lesser degree for the Beheret Apostle. Like, it's a similar concept, though. It's a similar phenomenon, I guess you should say. yeah, and for for the heroes that Miss Griffiths, there's another reference. Actually, the Skullite also tells Gus about it. It's in volume 28. Yeah. When he tells him that, you know, Griffiths feared Flora more than, you know, an army of 10,000 because these people who are into the world, they cannot hurt him. They just cannot hurt him. So right. even if a guy came at him with a knife and, you know, stabbed him in the face, he just, he just wouldn't walk. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, if someone shot him with a poison arrow, for example, like maybe the Behirat would guard it or something like that, for example. Yeah, something, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Not that we've ever seen him before. I, I, actually, uh, some, some members of the Bakiraka tried to, you know, kill him with a poison dart, but uh, Rakshas took care yeah. of Yeah. Yeah. I, I was yeah. alluding to the assassination in Volume 6. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, but okay. my point is, well, beyond that, even if the, the dart hit him, you know, it just wouldn't work. It right. wouldn't work. Right, sure. Uh, then we see Skull Knight escaping in a dramatic fashion, and I don't have a lot more to say about this section other than he meets up well, with Zod at the end. Go ahead. Yeah, he does, you know, spot the Beheret, and, uh, the Beheret or the Beheret Apostle, and he eats it. He swallows it before leaving. Right. Uh, that's true. Yeah, he yeah so... Yeah, then he does some pretty cool jumping around. I think it was pretty nice. <laughs> just, then just, he rides off on his horse like super speed. Yeah, super speed. Yeah, he's like back super to the future. Speed. Awesome. <laughs> there's actually that uh, you know that scene where there's a double page where he's standing, uh, Lucas at his back, and he's facing the giant ghost. Yeah, you know it's it's one of the I think the the panels where he looks you know really pretty cool. Well, sure. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, I think that's when he like. 
when he t- doesn't he say something to Luke about how you know that's when he realizes you know things are getting real and it's time to get out of there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah actually, there's something specific about that line he says. See, he says he sees so many of these signs appearing, as if he was looking for particular signs for this incarnation ceremony to begin. You know, that's what really struck me about the wording of that. We've we've heard those signs before. It's like it was in the prophecy to Zod, and I think uh, Guts got a little bit of it. And Skull Knight would understand it probably better than you know, certainly Guts, you know, better than anyone. He would know what to look for, and when he saw it, you know, e- even if he didn't know what to look for, he would know it when he saw it. Right. And so I think it's he was probably looking for the same signs that you know Zod was being you know like teased with you know to go to the Holy Land and look for these things, and you can you know see them. I think it refers specifically to the fact there's these extremely large amounts of ghosts, you know, giant ghosts which are gathering. So to to him, it's like, yeah, they are converging towards the tower. So it's 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 happening, you know, it started. The events are starting. So yeah. Anyways, here's another thing I wanted to talk about. Uh, it's uh, you know his discussion with Luca when yeah. he lets her go just before he meets up with Zod. They have a talk, and he tells her basically he tells her she should run away, and she still decides to go back. And I think it's a nice conclusion to this little talk. And beyond the fact uh, it gives some depth to Lucas' character, I think it actually also gives depth to the Skull Knight's character. Like yeah, because he like tries to help her, like he tries to give her good advice actually in his yeah, uh, and it, yeah, and it humanizes him. And there's one last thing I want to say is that. You know, something which might not be obvious to all listeners, but the Skull Knight saving Luca is a parallel to his saving of Rickard, which uh, truly shows that the events are mirroring what happened during the occultation ceremony. And just like Rickard ended up going back to the eclipse somehow, Luca went back to the tower. That's exactly right. I never uh, had uh, thought of it that way. Another yeah. does, and he also what does he say about her at the end? He comes away like impressed with her, you know, just seeing her yeah. is not sort of he's very he finds it strange that you know because I mean I think he you know like you say he's very kingly and he talks to people like he's a king talking to commoners, like he yeah. sort of is very impressed by her nobility for basically like a prostitute, yeah. you know, yeah, and, you and know, her, like he's like yeah you know, is is she just you know being you know, I mean, foolhardy or is she something more? And yeah. of course, uh, he's, in, he's interpreted by, by Zod's appearance after that. But yeah, I think it was a pretty interesting uh, moment. And uh, about his uh, his moment with Zod there, I mean, it's it's a pretty cool scene. Especially, I like the yeah. way Zod looks like, his, uh, his, his image there. His expression. Yeah. Yeah, they have that one shot of him, and he looks great, and Skull Knight just starts taking his sword out. And I think, I forget if there's dialogue, but if there is, it's probably something about how it's, you know, here we go again. And, uh, you know, well, like, it, it's it, all happening. Yeah, he says it all moves as if parallel to that time. Of course, yeah. the difference here being that their roles are reversed, and then Skull Knight's already there, Zod's trying to get in. Now, speaking of which, does that mean that Skull Knight lost this time? Because well, <laughs> Zod got by him. Yeah, you know, that's one thing I wanted to talk about was the duels that Skull Knight and Zod have, do you think 
Skull Knight could actually finish it, and he's toying with Zod, or is it literally a stalemate every single I, time? I don't think he is. I think it's. I think like, it's easy to look at it that way because it's like you know when I read it, it's like well, Skull Knight's you know he's he's my hero, <laughs> so it's easy you know to think of it that way. Do you think he would but, kill Zod if he had the chance to? I mean, it's still a I, weird relationship they have. Yeah, I don't know. I think they're I think they're fighting for real, but it's hard to say whether they're actually trying to kill each other or if they're trying to get the best of each other. Because I mean, obviously, you would think that when Skull Knight cuts his arm off, he could cut his head off afterwards you yeah, know while yeah. he can't protect himself but he doesn't and also it might maybe it's just not convenient because he's trying to get in he doesn't want to you know take an extra moment even to deal with it and maybe right. he's insulting him that way as well but you know i feel like the second time it's supposed to be implied that you know zod at least was able to get past him if yeah. not in similar fashion that you know skull knight wasn't able to stop him if he wanted to at that point well and you know yeah. Okay. Finish what you're saying. Okay, and it and it goes into sort of where they end up in uh, 26 when we get there, where they're dueling again, and you know Zod confidently, you know, I don't, I don't think Zod is like a bullshitter where if he's like, you know, if Skull Knight's just so much better than him that he's just going to keep doing it, you know, and pretending that you know he's not getting his butt kicked. He says he's the only one that can hold him, and you know they fight sort of evenly, and I feel like that one is sort of they're supposed to be at a stalemate there because obviously Skull Knight, he, you know, he wants to you know stop the apostles from killing Flora, so why would he mess around with Zod? Yeah, you know, if he could just finish it. Yeah, well, there's one thing, Volume Twenty. I mean, the scene is cool in a way because we don't actually see the fight. You know, we just see Zod appearing. So already, just drank that's... beer and pretended yeah. to fight. Like, why should you know what? You know, forget it. That's already that's already pretty cool, and you you can tell Zod is you know he's ready for round two or maybe round two thousand yeah. of the of the little fight, but I don't think in this occasion specifically. One of them, you know, got the best of the other. And I, I don't think, you know, the Skull Knight is particularly interested in fighting Zod. You know, I mean, Zod deliberately looks forward to yeah, fighting him. Yeah, he's more because, interested in fighting him than the other yeah, way around. because he's almost worthy. So, and, you know, well, you know, what matters is that when Zod, you know, appears, you know, the next time, he just erupts out of some rubble. Uh, I, I don't think, you know, the necessary the fight was, you know, you know, came to a conclusion. Basically, they sure. just fought for a while, and you know, they probably stopped when the uh, the shit, you know, hit the fan. But uh, that's about it. I think Zod so, just made, yeah. made a break for it when he realized Griffith yeah. was, was there. He like ran for it, and yeah. Skull Knight comes hot on his tail, basically. And well, I mean, hell, we can go into twenty one. Yeah, well, that's why I wanted to finish that. The the point, the infamous point. <laughs> yeah, I'm, exactly. I'm, go ahead. I'm. I'm I was going to say, I'm not sure, really. Uh, I'm sure it went down like that, like, you know, Zod okay. made a run for it, and I think they just were fighting, and they moved towards, you know, the interesting stuff when it happened. And yeah, uh, to, to move back to 21, uh, when Zod, you know, comes out of the rubble, the Skull Knight is, you know, standing on a wall. Yeah. What's interesting to me is that as Zod is running towards Griffith, uh, Guts notices the Skull Knight, and he just points. Yeah. He just points. He doesn't so intervene here. He just sits yeah. and points. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting in two two ways because uh, Skull Knight just points, and he's once again the one who tells Guts what's going to happen, and you know he tells him to look around and see Griffiths. And it's also interesting to see that the Skull Knight, at this point, he knows it's not the time to try and do anything anymore. So he's not even trying. He's not even trying to kill Griffiths. There's, right. Yeah, there's almost an implication, like you said, it might just be the facts that he knows he can't do anything, but it's almost like for just this whole moment, it's like sort of just the sign of even Skull Knight hanging back and being, even he's a spectator to this. 
Yeah. Like, you know, he's just, you know, it's almost like a, it's, I don't think it's supposed to be a sign of respect on his part, but it's just a matter that even he has to respect this moment. Well, yeah, it could be. I also think, you know, beyond that, I think, I mean, just not time. Right. So, yeah. He, he has, he had a window of opportunity to try to, to prevent things to happen and it's, it's past. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. he doesn't want Griffith to, you know, kick his ass if he goes down there. So <laughs> it's probably wise so, of him to hide up there on that wall. Good move. But it, it didn't, it didn't stop him from trying, you know, at a little <laughs> time. So. Yeah. yeah, you know, he tried, but I mean, oh, <laughs> uh, it was just, yeah, well, I have more we'll, to get, say. we'll I, get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that later on. So, <laughs> anyway, really? anyway I, I, as the volume ends, I also find interesting that, uh, we see him standing on the edge of a mountain, yeah. looking at, uh, contemplating the ruins of Albion, yep. and reflecting on the fact that the, the world's been changed. I like to think that at the end of '34, he's somewhere out there as well, you know, staring yeah. at the world as a, a, the new world, you know. Yeah. Um, that kind of wraps up that we don't see him, we don't see or hear of him again until Volume Twenty Four. It's when, actually the, one of the biggest breaks, I think, without him since his introduction. Well, since, like na- since, since now, actually. Well, with the 30, yeah, I mean, Guts and him don't interact for quite a while, you know? Yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah, I think Guts actually has a lag where he doesn't see Skull Knight from, 26. from 18 to 26. Oh, no, 20. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it is still 26. Anyway, in the cave. Um, yeah. so Flora tells him, tells Guts when they arrive that she was told that. Uh, to be waiting for guts and casca guided by tiny wings, so elves yeah. basically. She was told by a friend, she says. A friend, right? Yeah. At the time, we we don't know it's uh, the skull knight. She doesn't name him, but right. uh, yeah, because it happens until much later. Yeah. Um, what we can, the reason I wanted to talk about Flora was we can learn a little bit about Skull Knight through Flora, one of his, you know, someone he knew when he was a human, and so some yep. some of the ways she reacts to things and some of the things she knows we can parallel that Skull Knight probably knows as well. So it's kind of just an insight into his character as well. So that's why she's very important, independent of all the extra exposition she gives as well. I mean, this is probably the most significant volume in terms of understanding the Berserk world yeah. uh, in the whole series. I mean, I'm constantly yeah. referring to this volume. I think everybody should have it at hand when we're talking about this kind of stuff. Uh, one of the more significant things that she discusses, I mean, we're not going to go through everything she says, but... One of the ones I really wanted to focus on was something Azil touched on uh, last podcast was when she's talking about the layers of the world and the kind of entities that gravitate towards the different areas of the astral world. She talks about the dead who did not realize that they were dead or who left the physical world regretfully. They often wander there or stay there. Uh, Eventually, all become aware of their own death or become unable to maintain their form and pass away from this layer. And so... It's not conclusive, but I think Azil made a very good argument that that's a possibility for what happened to Skull Knight as just someone who refused to die and they stayed in that form or was able to maintain his form or at least his spirit in the physical or in the astral world. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think, well, we know a little bit more about, you know, what I think went into that process with the armor and everything. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, yeah, it's probably a combination of a lot of different things, and maybe, you know, I think that definitely has something to do with it. That's definitely a little uh, clue for him, yeah. along with the armor, and then we're probably going to find out more having to do with, you know, why he feels like a fairy. I mean, maybe it's as simple as that, or maybe it's, you know, there's probably some direct uh, intervention. Well, I mean, we've, we've discussed that before, but I think it's either one of the two or the combination of the armor yeah. he wears, 
and the fact that he knows a lot about Elfhelm, and presumably he's been to Elfhelm before, has been around other elves. So that's what I think that is. Or, but maybe his, the, the nature of his existence is tied to elves in some way, like the way he's able to maintain his form like that. Yeah, I think it's related to his armor, personally. Okay, but, uh, yeah, that was yeah, my, that's my first thought. That's my first there, always grab. There, there could be a, a lot of reasons. I know. Well, I think yeah. it's, I think it's interesting uh, to note that he was there when uh, Guts and Co met uh, Flora, but he chose not he to was, reveal himself. Well, yeah, that actually, was uh, clear, an interesting. Is it clear when he appears? Because Flora notices him at the very end of the visit, saying, "Oh, you were here." But I mean, yeah. we don't know how long he was there. But it's kind of a you know at that point, it's yeah. semantics really. Yeah, it's, well, it's still interesting that he was like you know I don't want to say hiding, but you know that he didn't want to make an appearance. He didn't want them to see him. He yeah. didn't sort of want to see guts at that moment. And then it becomes even more interesting when she sort of you know asks you know questions like sort of his motives with guts, whether he's really trying to help him or whether he's using him. Right. Well, before before we get into that though, I, I wanted to kind of ease into the floor stuff. I realized I'd forgotten to mention something. Um, Guts' brand reacts to Flora in a different way. And, of course, it reacts to SK in a different way as well. Yeah, I yeah. wanted to he, talk about why that is. I know, I, know, I know what it's implying is that they are in some way supernatural themselves. But yep. what I was thinking of is why does the brand react that way? The, the wow. science of that. Go ahead, Azil. So the so brand reacts to not, not only evil uh-huh. but to anything which is astral. So, you know, I mean, yeah, we, we see Guts not feeling the Skull Knight through his brain several times. And I think what he says about Flora is also, it also implies that, like, he can feel her faintly. And yeah. it's, not, it's not like an apostle, but yeah, he can feel that she's not normal. Right. That she's somebody who is, you know, an astral being in part. So, right. yeah, yeah, I think that's just what it means. But why would the... Think of what the, the nature the nature of what the brand well, is. The is. brand puts him into. I mean, I think just by the same way it sort of puts him into the interstice. It's not yeah. just for evil beings that yeah. you know he. It, it doesn't just let him see evil beings. It sort of puts him in there for everything. And I think in that same way, like the brand reacting to evil is when it bleeds. Yes. And so it's like so when he just feels it like tingling. That's just you know that just has to do with something that's supernatural. I mean that's how I sort of like that's I think that's how I would answer your question. Yeah. So, Pretty much. I mean, he's in his interstice, so yeah, he can feel beings who are as well. Right. I had a broader theory on it, but it's it sounds a little far-fetched, and I don't really want to get into it. But basically, it touched on the nature of the God Hand, and can 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 we diametrically say that there's a white and uh, black and, and white magic in Berserk, and that these are able to sense both kinds? Well, I don't think I don't think it's that simple. Okay, I didn't think so either, but just thought yeah. I. Had. I mean, just to answer it shortly, you know, not to spend a long time on it, but I don't think it's that simple. Okay. And the one, the other big thing about Flora's conversation is whenever she actually has a chance to do a uh, one-on-one conversation with Guts, Guts goes straight to the Behirit and ultimately asks about the God Hand. And yeah. Flora's response to that, fascinating to me, because this is someone who's a close friend of Skull Knight, who presumably has probably encountered the God Hand from time to time, given the fact that she's probably as old as, or around the same age as the Skull Knight. But her answer to Guts, it's not just as if it's cryptic. She acts as if it's still a great mystery to her. She says that's one of the great mysteries of those who explore the astral world. And so I wonder if Skull Knight actually knows more than she does about them. Uh, I would, I would imagine, because I don't know that she, maybe I don't know that they ever, you know, maybe like Shirke and Guts have fought, you know, against beings. Maybe they had a similar sort of team at one point. Yeah. Not like 
you know, team is in, they would, you know, together, they were right. like partners. Right. And uh, it could be that way, but it could also be that she just sort of hung back and he was the one sort of getting, you know, getting his, uh, getting, you know, into the dirty stuff with them. Similar to the cliff it, off later on. Yeah, and it could also be that she's just really fastidious. So she knows a lot, but she recognizes that there's a lot more that she doesn't know. Yeah. Like, she might know as much as Skull Knight or anybody, but she just, you know, recognizes, but, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. You know, I think... Flora, uh, she she doesn't she she does know a lot. I mean, she explains him how the Barret works because guts is you know. I mean, he I guess he never really thought about it. He thought the Barret could summon the God End, but the, she tells him that's not really how it works. And she she explains him to him that the Barret is basically bound to its master, right. which she doesn't name, but is you know clearly the eater of evil. So it's a pretty big deal to me because yeah. it go, yeah. it goes beyond the God End. But what she tells him is a, a mystery. Is more like you know, what they are, how it works, where they exist, this kind of stuff. So I think she knows, she knows, you know, what they are. She knows they were humans, interesting, but she doesn't go into the details because she doesn't know the, say, yeah, the details of it. Like she doesn't know how they get their power exactly. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so in that way, I think it's not really a betrayal of the fact she's very knowledgeable. It's just, yeah, even for her, there are some things she doesn't know. Yeah. Related to that, specifically the God Hand, I mean, she she is the first person independent of Griffith to indicate that there's a greater being in the depths of the astral world in this page. She says, they, uh, the God Hand are the executors of the will of something lurking in the distant abyss of the astral world. And there's this massive two-page panel of this, the dark pool beneath yeah. the astral world. So yeah. other than Griffith saying God at the end of uh, in, in episode 82 of volume 13, it's the first time you ever read an indication that there is a larger being. So, Yeah, well, it's one of the few times. Like I mentioned earlier, there's also the Shadow the ep- of Idea. The, the which episode is, uh, titles, though, it's not really yeah. quite the same thing as an acknowledgement from one of the characters. Yeah, yeah, it's true, but I mean, for the viewers, yeah, okay, yeah, if you, yeah, if you want. My point is that it, it is uh, hinted at, even sure. though no character is actually talking about it. But, I mean, if you want to think about it from viewers, a viewer wouldn't necessarily know what the Shadows of Idea means. Without well, knowledge, of episode eighty-three. Yeah, yeah, but Mira, I think Mira did it deliberately. I mean, yeah. it, it can only refer to that, right? So I, I, I think he did it deliberately. It, it actually, the way it worked out without with eighty-three cut, it sort of mir- it it parallels very well because it's like you know Griffith, we see him going deeper and deeper in, and then he find you know he gets to that thing that's in the you know in the deepest depths, and she yeah. refers directly to that and to nothing more. Yeah. So it's yeah. actually very consistent with what he cut out. Yeah, yeah actu- actually, I always thought that uh, cutting out 83 was, you know, it ended up, you know, falling pretty well because I think the the end of 82 is extremely powerful and, you know, very ominous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it works better than act- actually having uh, 83 in there. 83, I don't know if I can say cheapens uh, it of evil, but it makes it look less... Yeah, dangerous and you know, big and extremely powerful. It, it removes by removing some of its mystery. It makes it less you know impressive to me. And so well, one thing. Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah. Now I was going to say I, I think you know Murad you know was right to to cut it out in a way. Yeah. Well, one difference that it makes is that, and this is just um, this is just sort of style. But when you first see it in '82, and just as it stands, the only time you see it now. 
it's it's shrouded in darkness. It's mm-hmm. just in this deep blackness. But in '83, yeah. it's immediately <laughs> surrounded by it's it's white everywhere. You can see everything. It's like who turned on the lights? Yeah, it and, bothers uh, me. It's yeah. it's really different because I mean I imagine it would be hard to sort of you know it would have been difficult to sort of like do that world and I wonder if he had kept it in if he would have darkened it or changed it or you know what yeah. but it was it's very there was a big contrast yeah I, I agree and I think he was trying to represent the astral world in a a very psychedelic way you know something very yeah. alien but uh, yeah it, it it didn't come out I mean. It was hard to represent, and uh, again, that's one of the things that made the Eat of Evil look less impressive to me within that context than it is uh, within the context of the end of episode 82. Yeah. As we end the volume, Skull Knight's uh, watching out over Guts from inside Flora's treehouse, and Guts kind of senses him for a moment, but, you know, SK kind of, you know, leaves before Guts can see him, and so it, it really implies that Skull Knight's been watching over him uh, and that's why he probably asked Flora to uh, invite them in, basically. And so it kind of makes you wonder about his motivations here. Yeah, I mean, she uh, she wonders herself. You know, she asks him whether she's helping him or, you know, she just wants Guts to, you know, help him. If he's using him, basically, or actually worries about him. Yeah, and Sort he, of questions his motives. Right, and he gives all he does is give a really vague answer that doesn't really mean anything. He says something like, well, maybe they'd be guided, guided by causality anyway, you know. Is it yeah. doesn't actually have, is, you know, it's, it kind of plays a neutral neutral stance for that. Yeah, it's a very technical non-answer, and it's sort of like, I don't know, it, it makes you wonder more than it, you know, reassures you. Yeah. And uh, another thing I wanted to talk about, uh, Griff, I think you mentioned earlier, was the imagery here, and that it's kind of a weird scene visually because you don't really see a full-on shot of Skull Knight. You see his shadow first and the outline of him. And even when it shows him, it just shows like the extremities of him. And then it shows a full-on, full-panel face. And I wondered what that was about. It's just kind of, it's really strange for Skull Knight. Why do you think they did that? Well, it, it's sort of just the whole, it's representative of the whole scene. I mean, he's, he's hiding from them. And also it's sort of like his motives are hidden in the scene. And she's questioning him about it. And at first, you like you see a shadow in the window. Then she sees his shadow, or you see a shadow on the floor when Flora comes in. And then it just like sort of has this weird shot, like that we don't really get too many like this of just like his eyes looking bigger and sort of like more <laughs> like really big vacant skull eyes, you know, very cold yeah. when he's responding. And it's just I don't know. It's one of the he's. I feel like it's sort of the least nobly he's been portrayed. You know, he's sort of in the shadows, literally in the scene yeah and another thing i wanted to point out was in the very the very the, the last impression you get from the conversation is flora talking about how uh and sk as well talking about how their their trip is probably guided by causality and it kind of makes you wonder about those two in particular flora and sk if this is a reenactment of maybe when they set out themselves as humans long ago because there's all those there's always those overtones about Guts and Shierke together. So I wonder if this particular meeting and this journey was kind of similar to them or if it reminded them of the early. Yeah, there's a definite sense of, you know, it's all happening again. And, right. it, and it comes full circle when they're on their way back and you see them working on the armor. And yeah. Then, yeah, that's, and they pretty much directly speak on it. You know, they talk about causality and the nature of it, you know, being a spiral and not a circle. Right. So and it doesn't have to be exactly the same for them. Exactly. And we're definitely going to talk more about that 
in the next podcast because we ran out of time. Uh, we're going to end it here with the volume 24. We'll start back with volume 26 next week, and hopefully we'll be able to end up finishing all the Skull Knight stuff at the end of the next podcast, 26 through 34. So thanks again, guys. See you later. Yep. Yeah. Bye. Okay. Thanks for having me. Hey, guys, we'll be back next week with more. And as always, we like to end the podcast by talking about what we've been playing, watching, and reading. Um, I haven't really had a lot of time to do a lot of playing myself uh, since actually New York. So the last time I played a video game, I think, was when I played Resident Evil, which I'm still working on. But I believe Griff's actually finished Resident Evil for 3DS at this point. Yes, just finished it uh, last night. Oh, awesome. And you liked it, apparently? Yeah, I, uh, I really did. It was... Uh... It was different. It was different from a lot of the other games. Like it, uh, yeah, it was much more sort of this sort of international intrigue story. It like didn't focus on a lot of the soap opera elements. I mean, it was still there, but it was in small doses. It was more like I don't know, more like Tom Clancy or something. I mean, not exactly like that, but yeah, it sort of it was a little more aloof with the story, a little more objective. Like you're watching you know, important events more than like you're in the middle of like someone's personal, you know, soap opera going on. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I liked it. I also think the story is generally, you know, better. I mean, it's better. It's written better and, you know, less cheesy. The characters are, are, are better. Yeah. Even the voice acting is, you know, better to me than what we Yeah, it was really to. good. Uh, what, do you, what do you guys think about in the, in the scope of the, or sorry, in the context of the rest of the series, like Resident Evil 5 and 4? To me, 4 is my favorite Resident Evil. I mean, I love parts of 1 and parts of 2, but 4 is where I can really say I love that game, you know? Yeah, 4. I'm, I'm with 4, too. <laughs> I'm, I'm all about 2 and 4. So it's like uh, Leon is, you know, my big hero. But after that, yeah, the Jill games. is I, I, I coined the term the Jillogy yeah. yesterday. I'm very proud of it. And... Uh, <laughs> Like there, all of her games are really uh, decent in the series. Only, only Leon's uh, are better. Well, in ahead, your Jill. opinion, you mean? <laughs> oh, well, okay. Well, <laughs> I know you're a big Jill fan, so yeah. No, but I like I like Leon as well. I mean, to me personally, I I would say Resident Evil one, two, three, four, and this one are the five best episodes in the series. <laughs> What other ones are there other than Veronica? Are you just well, saying Veronica there's Veronica, basically? there's Resident Evil Five, there's Resident Evil Zero. I mean, you know, oh, should yeah. I, read I actually list forgot them Zero exists. So did which I. I think yeah. I preferred. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what, where do you think Revelations rates among the on the among those for you guys? Yeah, honestly, it's pretty good. I mean, it's it's among my my favorite in the series. Okay. Cool. <laughs> and uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about was. I think everyone here, yeah, I think, Nomad, you've played Mass Effect, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> okay, so everyone here is a pretty big Mass Effect fan, and so we all, you know, Mass Effect 3 comes out in two days, which really slipped my mind, because, you know, when Mass Effect 2 was about to come out, I was, like, counting down the days and the weeks and the months until it got there. And well, Mass Effect 2 will have that, you know, effect on you. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> you're not as excited. Yeah, and now Mass Effect 3 is rolling around, and I, I don't really have any particularly strong emotions for it. And I guess it's a good place to be before you play a big game like that is to lower your expectations. But it just feels a little weird to me that I'm not really excited about it. So what do you guys think about it? <laughs> well, well um, go ahead. Go ahead, dude. <laughs> no, no, no. No, go ahead. 
I don't know. I, hey. Someone go. <laughs> I, I know you. You play the demo, so you can, you know, just break all dreams. Yeah, yeah. I, I was pl- I was anxiously playing Mass Effect two, and then because um, I wanted to cover all the bases and everything in the story, so that I can play the third one. And I played the the demo, and without spoiling anything, I have to say that I, I was greatly disappointed um, as far as the story was concerned. The gameplay. You know, if you like the shooters and all that stuff, you know, kind of like a Gears of War feel to it, if you will, then, uh. you, know, you know, then you're good to go. But honestly, I felt nothing. And I mean nothing for that demo. And as, as far as the story was concerned, and it it disappointed me so, so bad that I literally stopped playing Mass Effect 2 because I was like, oh, wow. yeah, wow. I mean, I, I, and, and I'm hoping I'm wrong. I really, I really hope that. You know, because it was a demo, they cut off stuff. You know, from from the beginning, because that's that's where where the setup is. And um, but it felt uh, generic. It felt like they they just focus more on the gameplay and um, pretty much just the, the the idea of a shooter than having an RPG and exploiting. You know, the the vastness of of the story, which Mass Effect originally was. Yeah, um, I think. I think I understand what you mean. I mean, in itself, uh, I don't mind that it plays like Gears of War. I mean, Mass Effect 1 was already trying to be a third-person shooter, so even though it came off a little bit differently, I think that wasn't what they intended. So I don't really mind if it plays like that, because that's not not too bad. But uh, I think I know what you mean. It's basically like Shepard is, you know, king of reapers from uh, on top of a vehicle, you know, shooting some kind of machine gun. And it's just, it doesn't feel like Mass Effect. Is that well, is that what you mean? Yeah, well, I like, mean. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> no, it's like they reduced it. I know. Yeah, I was just gonna say. I know what you mean too. Where it feels like you know, you said it was. It felt really generic, and it's like, well, yeah, because it sounds like they've reduced it to like alien invasion on Earth. You know, it's like you know, it's like Mass Effect. The original plot was really sort of interesting, like the way they did all that, and now it's like it's sort of been boiled down to like more of the worlds. Well, like unless there's gonna be a big surprise where it really expands, but it's it, like that's sort of how they've been selling it anyway. I, I don't know, you know, uh, I, I have read a little bit about Mass Effect 3. I actually just finished reading or hearing a, a interview with Casey Hudson, the executive producer of the series. And the way it sounds like is that's just the, the marketing angle of Mass Effect 3 right now is the Earth battle because it's an easily okay. marketable like trailer type thing. But, you know, there is a galaxy map. You will go to other planets. You will recruit members and things like that. So you will, go to, you will still explore the galaxy. That's still a part of it. And there's one thing, you know, there's the angle... For, from the first Mass Effect, a lot of fans were asking uh, if Shepard would ever go to Earth, you know. And right. same thing with Mass Effect 2. And they were like, ah, oh, you'll see, maybe you'll see. Uh. So I think they are very susceptible to fan you know, reactions. And I think the reason they put such uh, uh, what's a, a focus on it is because a lot of people asked for it. So they're like, oh, yeah, you wanted the Earth? Yeah, fuck yeah, okay. you get it. <laughs> But, uh, yeah. I, you know, I, I'm not sure it's a very good thing. And honestly, I hope they didn't change the plot or didn't write the plot, you know, afterwards because of this. Because I don't think that's a proper way to write, you know, stories. So. Yeah, there's a lot riding on this game, because, particularly because of the precedent set by Mass Effect 1. And in my opinion, unrealized in Mass Effect 2. There's a lot that needs to happen to win me over in Mass Effect 3. Because Mass Effect 2 was a really big letdown to me. Because the scope of the game is so limited when you compare it to Mass Effect 1. You literally, the scope of Mass Effect 2 is 
okay, go recruit a party and fight the bad guys in the end. That's the entire game. Like, the plot doesn't deviate from that. It's ridiculous. And well, it's a total lateral move from, yeah. the, from the first game. It doesn't really progress that plot. It sort of puts it on hold. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so there's, a, there's a lot that has to happen in Mass Effect 3 to get me on its side. So I'm not even sure I'm going to get it at launch. That's where I sit right now. I mean, independent of me not even having time to play games right now, I just don't feel compelled to buy it at launch. I'll get it later when I have time to play it and after I hear what people say about it. Like, for me, if I hear you can't have Liara and Rex in the same party, forget it. I mean, I'm, not even, I'm not even interested. You know? Well, I mean, it, it seems to me that Bioware kind of dropped the ball, not, not only on Mass Effect. I mean, in most of their biggest franchise today, uh, the same thing happened with Dragon Age. I mean, you, you start this game that has such a complex, very interesting, deep story. And when the sequel comes out, you expect that, you know, okay, they have enough content to touch bases with, you know, with things that we are already familiar with. But, you know, they end up going on a completely opposite um, side of it. And instead of exploiting, you know, the other more interesting topics that we, you know, that we had already learned from, they pretty much just say, okay, so you want new characters here, new right. characters, you know, you want to go to Kirkwall, or then here, go to Kirkwall, you know, and you're like, okay, you know, it's... Well, actually, it's just, I mean, I think Mass Effect 2 was initially going to be a large expansion pack for, I'm sorry, sorry, Dragon Age 2 was originally going to be a large expansion pack for Dragon Age 1, but the marketing team's like, hmm, no, you can add a 2 to that and make it real, it's more, much more marketable <laughs> for us. And then they've always had t- they've always had more plans to do more of Dragon Age, but they you know haven't gotten around to it yet. And I know Dragon Age two didn't do too well, you know. So oh, it was, was, it was bad. Yeah, that's also the fact uh, is they developed it really quickly. I oh mean, yeah, Dragon Age the original Dragon Age took a long time to develop, and it was some kind of a love letter to the old Baldur's Gate fans. Yeah, but you know, Dragon Age two was more like okay, uh, let's do it quickly, let's make money, and. Oh, Mass Effect worked well. Well, you know what? Let's make it more. <laughs> let's make it more actiony. Let's and yeah. It's also as the angle where they made it for the consoles, you know. Right. And uh, I think that also put some more limitations of the game. So in a lot of ways, I mean, it's not a big surprise to me that Dragon Age Two was uh, not a bust, but was not a big success. Yep. And I mean, it really speaks to, and this is the, the core of this whole conversation is how we feel about Bioware as a company moving forward now that it's like a subsidiary of EA and they're putting Bioware's name on you know, the Command and Conquer series. It doesn't even, <laughs> yeah. Bioware as a name doesn't even mean anything anymore. It's just like a brand. Yeah. Yeah, they can really, stamp yeah. it on there. So, I mean, it's, it's just a sad story, really. It well, is. It's, it's more about teams now, you know, there's right. Edmonton teams and, you know, Montreal, whatnot. yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's depressing. Um, <laughs> I also, Let us all cry about it. <laughs> also, really briefly, I think only me and Azil can speak to this, so it'll be kind of brief, but the next Assassin's Creed game was announced, or actually it was leaked uh, yep. recently, and for those of you not, that not, don't follow Assassin's Creed, it, it kind of goes through the ages. Each major entry in the series is in a different age of uh, history. The first one was during the Crusades. The second one was during the Renaissance, and so everyone's been speculating about what the third one's going to be at. I was always kind of like leaning towards American Revolution or French Revolution because it's so they can draw from a lot of things in that in that area in that era. Yeah. It's going to be the American Revolution, so I'm like, oh, okay, sure. But the screenshots of it to me it looks seriously awkward because you have this assassin with the traditional looking like hooded 
you know, <laughs> garb. It, it does not look like a natural fit for the American Revolution because the guy yeah. has a, a musket and like a, a yeah, hatchet in his hand and stuff like this that. Guy has a tricorder hat, right? And, you know, red coat. <laughs> it looks real weird to me. Uh, and so, go ahead, I Richard. think he's, he's supposed to be a Native American too. So I mean, oh yeah, I'm sure. I I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it, it feels like well, I mean. Who, who the hell what, did the assassins, you know, get there? Why recruit this guy? Yeah. And in the context of the time, I don't think, you know, I don't think he could be, I mean, pass, you know, for a random guy very easily either. So, yeah, there are many, many ways it seems a bit awkward. But um, the, the time itself, I think, fits really well because, you know, they can work in Washington and Jefferson and Ben Franklin yeah. and all these little personalities from that, from that time that'll fit perfectly well with all the conspiracy theories and things that yeah. the series is known for. So I think that, go ahead. No, I was going to say the historical context is very interesting. And, okay. and actually, I look forward to know who's going to be the bad guy and who's going to be the good guy. You know, I'm pretty sure Washington is going to be some kind of heroic secret assassin leader or something like that. So, yeah, I think he'll be heroic and then he might get, you know, one of the apples and then might turn. So, who knows? yeah. But yeah, there's another aspect to it is that I'm playing the you know latest uh, Assassin's Creed game recently, and yeah, you know it's it's uh, it's kind of getting old for me. You know, always the same thing. I, I love the games, but well, yeah. no doubt, no doubt, man, because it's it's not even you're not even playing Assassin's Creed two. You're playing Assassin's Creed two part three at that yeah, point. It's yeah, it's ridiculous, pre- pretty much. So. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of content in the game, you know. I mean, they've added so much stuff. You can kill yeah. people a hundred different ways, but in the end, I just go in there with the hidden blade and I just slice them in the throat. And yeah, I mean, it's the most efficient way. Why would you not? I mean, yeah, and you know, with Assassin's Creed Two, I got the hidden stuff. I did a lot of side quest with mm. Brotherhood. I didn't really bother, and with this one, <laughs> I, Same I'm here, man. yeah, I'm barely even compelled to finish the game. You know, I mean, I have to force myself through it. Right. Well, you know that was it. Revelations is that the name of it? Yeah. Yes. Right. That that word's going around a lot these days. More yeah. Revelations. Revel- <laughs> so Revelations was initially planned as a 3DS handheld title, and then they were like, "Yeah, you know, we want to spend more time on Assassin's Creed 3, so let's go ahead and port this over to major consoles." Well, I, I guess if for this, there's a, an interesting question because I remember uh, Ubisoft, I believe, is the, the company that's doing them, correct? Yes. Yeah. French company, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the question lies on because they've been kind enough to pretty much publish a new game every year. Yeah, so, they're monsters, so, man. They're, they're crazy. So, I mean, would you rather have a title every X amount of years and make sure that it's good and innovative, and and, yeah. and, and or do you rather have a content, you know? short but every year you know like have, have a little bit more of a flow so to me uh, that's to me that's no question i would rather have them make quality titles take however long they need you know that's my thing i don't care yeah. about yearly you know, releases that's also the fact you know after a while if you just play the same kind of game it, you know, it gets old i mean just you know you're, you're bored you know so i think every two years three years it's not so bad but the reason yeah, like, the reason every, they go ahead go ahead Griff. yeah yeah, it's like if it comes out every year, even if it's good, it's like depending on how long you play that, it's like you're not even you're going to be tired of the game by the, still by the time the next one comes out. And it's like you know I only want to play like really good quality games anyway, so it's like I don't care if it's like ten years. You know, to me it's sort of like whatever comes out that's sort of a transcendent game. It's like I don't want to just like I need something to play just to play something. Yeah, so well, I would yeah. definitely go. You know, I definitely want to wait. 
Well, all you got to do is play Assassin's Creed 1, go to Assassin's Creed 2, and then stop. <laughs> That's yeah. all you got to do. <laughs> Simple. <laughs> That's what I would recommend anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, that being said, Brotherhood is a nice game, and Revelations is also a nice game. And I think Brotherhood is better than Assassin's Creed 2. So, you know, it's it's uh, it's really hard to it's it's hard because the games do get better, but it's just it's it's there's not enough variety to you know keep somebody interested when it's just the same stuff over and over. Yeah. Yeah. And in the in the same way, I guess. After I played uh, Mass Effect 2, I played it very intensively, and then I, I haven't touched it again since I finished it. And, you know, I'd been playing Mass Effect 1 a lot. Like, I finished the game, you know, I don't know, a dozen times. I think it's a game I finished the most, you know, most times. Yeah. Anyway, and I just, you know, I guess I kind of got burned out. And um, I think it's the same for any game. I mean, at least for me, after a while, you, you do get burned out, so. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think if I had to pick the games I've played the most, the number of times over, for me it's like Final Fantasy VI and Mass Effect 1. I've played Mass Effect 1 probably four or five times through, which is unheard of the way I play games. So, yeah, I love it. Yeah, I think I play Zelda 2 quite quite a few times, actually. I'm, yeah, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm, ash- I'm ashamed. <laughs> I'm ashamed to admit it, but yeah, Zelda Two. The, the Zelda, wait, <laughs> yeah. wait, Adventure of Link, Zelda Two. Like, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. Well, For me, I it play- would probably be uh, Ocarina of Time and like Fallout. Yeah. You know, so Zelda I play the most is the uh, original one, but I play Zelda Two quite quite a few times. Yeah. Well, you don't really play Zelda Two. You just go into the town and put the controller down. And then you turn the volume all the way up and listen to well, that. Well, I, I want to answer the question. I, I will not answer the question. Hey, whatever makes him happy. Uh, yeah, hey. I, I, love I listen it. to that when I reply to posts, you know, for all listeners. <laughs> when I write really big posts, I just listen to that, you know, for hours on end. God, it's like it's like putting on the berserk armor. It like puts pushes you over to the other side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I just think that that's just anymore. in your head, like while you're crushing people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to link to that song in the thread notes for sure. Oh, <laughs> how to feel your pain. Okay, guys, I think we're gonna wrap it up for video game discussion. Uh, thanks for joining us again. We'll be back next week, probably. We're not really sure yet. We're still talking about that, but keep your eyes peeled. See ya. Peace out. Later.